0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Father, we are needy people. Lord, in need of... You to speak into our lives, Father. So as we uh, jump into your word here this morning and uh, discuss uh, what is a a weighty passage, Father, we pray that you would just bring illumination, that you would bring uh, clarity and also power to your word, and uh, Lord, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I was reading yesterday about a, a plane crash that maybe some of you might remember. On January 25th, 1990, a Colombian Boeing 707 needlessly crashed onto Long Island in New York, killing 73 of its 159 passengers. I don't know if you remember that. The tragedy occurred due to the absence of one critical word which might have prevented the crash. Due to bad weather, the plane had already attempted to make one landing and failed and now their fuel supply was getting dangerously low. The control tower needed to hear one very important word, emergency. That Key word would have granted them priority status ahead of all the other planes. However, cockpit transcriptions of the conversation between the pilot and the co-pilot revealed that more than once the pilot instructed the co-pilot to inform the tower of the emergency. Asked if the air traffic controllers had been informed, the co-pilot assured the pilot they had But unfortunately, the co-pilot had not used the English word emergency. He chose a different word that failed to indicate the the seriousness of the situation. It was a a language problem. And for that lack of that one crucial, urgent word, 73 people died. It was unintentional. The the co-pilot's choice of words minimized the problem. And this caused the air traffic controllers to place the plane's landing on a lower priority, and when their fuel ran out, they crashed. This reminds me of so many people today who minimize the urgency of the situation when it comes to sin. How do we talk about sin anymore in this world? in a world that doesn't believe in sin? How do we sound that alarm that Romans chapter 3 talks about? I believe that the sin problem that we're reading about, that we're preaching about this morning is the most urgent emergency that this world faces despite how full the news is right now of just terrible things. How do we sound that alarm Paul first clearly sounded the alarm way back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 when he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He didn't beat around the bush. And Paul has now proceeded in probably one of the most extensive passages in all of Scripture to just clarify that alarm and how severe it is and how universal it is he applies it first in the rest of chapter one here verses 19 through 32 he applies it first to those who are openly unrighteous to the gentiles the the people in the world the idolaters the homosexuals the the disobedient to parents the faithless the heart heartless the ruthless those people that are just obviously far from god And then in chapter 2, he surprisingly sounds the same alarm amongst those who are secretly unrighteous, amongst the Jews, amongst the people of God. He sounds the alarm that the wrath of God is coming against sin. And now, finally here, after two and a half chapters of sounding that alarm, Paul finally brings it all together and draws some stark conclusions that this is, in fact, an emergency. Because all of us, all of us stand before God guilty and silenced. You know, this news of an emergency situation that we're receiving here in in Romans chapter 3 is probably the the worst news you could ever receive and it's it's probably worse news than you can even imagine and paul in a sense drags the whole world here into the courtroom in this passage and in verse 9 he brings the charge against us and then in verses 10 through 18 he delivers the scriptural evidence against us and then in verses 19 and 20 he renders the final verdict so we'll begin here in verse 9 with the charge All are under sin. Look at verse 9. It starts out, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have to remember where we left off last week. After spending Romans chapter 2 charging his Jewish brethren with hypocrisy, Paul envisions them raising a series of anticipated objections. This isn't Paul's first time uh, at this rodeo, so to speak. He's been all over the world, uh, going first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And he knows, he can anticipate what his Jewish brethren are gonna object to uh, everything that he's been saying. And maybe perhaps chief among these objections is what we see in chapter three, verse one, where Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? After talking about all the dangers of, of being a hypocritical Jew, he envisions the Jewish people's sort of raising this objection, is there no advantage, Paul, in being a Jew? Is there no value in my circumcision? Is there no value in my Jewishness? To which Paul responds, brothers, yes, there is much advantage, much in every way. And so the pendulum swings this way as he talks about the advantage of being a Jew and the privileges of having the Word of God and sitting under the 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 promises of the Word of God. And now as we come into our passage this morning in verse 9, Paul must make sure that that pendulum doesn't swing too, too far here. In hearing of these advantages, Paul swings it back the other way and says here, what then are we Jews any better off? Meaning, Does this position of privilege that I've just been describing make you any better off spiritually than the Gentiles? Does it save you from your sin? Does it somehow in and of itself make you less of a sinner? And Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You know, you should sit up and take notice of a verse like this. Even maybe underlining it in your bible because this is paul himself summarizing all that he's been talking about since romans chapter 1 and verse 18 this is if you if you like cliff note summaries here this is a a verse to underline in your bible this is paul's own understanding of all that he has already charged and as I said, the, the picture here is a courtroom and this, this being the formal charge or accusation that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I see, uh, I see the significance of this charge as at least twofold. First of all, it, it really highlights the universality of this charge. He says all, both Jews and Greeks. He's indicting both Jew and Gentile, and therefore all individuals in both of those groups, he is indicting you and me. It's universal. No one escapes. Secondly, it is severe. Paul says that all are under sin. To be under sin is emphasizing its power or dominion over you. You know, when we've got a situation under control, we might say something like, hey, I'm on top of it. I got it. I'm on top of it. (laughs) But that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. We are not on top of our sin problem. Rather, it is on top of us. We are under sin. We are under its power. And the problem is deeper than just mere surface sins, right? He doesn't say here that that all are sinners. he will say that, but he's not saying that here. he's not saying going directly to the symptom of our specific sins, but he goes deeper than that. He says we are under sin, it's a condition that we are in you know yesterday i was I was making a, a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast, and uh This will show you how good of a cook I am. I was making it in the microwave. I put it in the microwave and I I turned it on and I kind of walked away from it and got thinking about something else. The next thing I know, I turn around, I look and the oatmeal has bubbled up and is like pouring out of the bowl all over the microwave. No problem. I I opened the microwave up and I I wiped it up. Right. Continued the the cooking process and, and ate my breakfast. But you know, some people treat the sin problem, like it's just a surface mess in their microwave. Right? Yeah, I've got a few sins I need to clean up, a few things I need to wipe up here and there. But we treat it as if it sits on the surface of our lives and it doesn't somehow penetrate to the core of who we are. Paul says it's much deeper than that. You don't understand. You, we are all under sin's dominion, under its power. We are enslaved to it. Paul's going to unpack that much more here in this letter in the chapters to come. You know, even your own experience will verify the truth of what Paul's saying here. Think about the power of, of sin that you've tasted even in your own life. I think sometimes we don't really sense the, the power of sin until we really begin to try to resist it. I can tell you that was true in my own life. I remember when I was in high school and uh, still growing in my discipleship to the Lord. One thing that really drove me to the Lord was when I tried to stop sin on my own and realized I couldn't. Think of the abiding power of selfishness in a life causing you to live for yourself instead of living for others or for God even in your own marriage, even in relationships where you love the other person like your, your spouse or your children, we see in there a power uh, of sin over us that is driving us to selfishness. Think of the power of greed in your life that causes you to inexplicably spend money on yourself or else hoard it instead of helping someone in need. Think of the power of laziness that causes you to shirk your responsibilities that you know you ought to do. Think of the vanity, what that drives you to do. Think of the power of lust in your life, or the power of anger. I could go go on and on. Think about the sway that those sins have over a human life. And, And... Especially when we try to break the the sinful patterns of behavior that that those deep rooted sins cause in us. We begin to, to sense and to know on a deep level what Paul's talking about here. We know that when he charges us with this, we know that it's true. but in case anyone is still unconvinced paul offers irrefutable scriptural evidence and he really strings together here just an impressive amount of scriptures you know paul knew his bible and he really just strings them to these scriptures together like they're pearls on a on a strand here just brings them together from various places in the scriptures there's at least 6 different but thematically similar old testament scriptures that that paul strings together here as the evidence. He says, as it is written. I really think that this scriptural evidence that Paul is about to bring to us here backs up the charge, the charge of the universality and severity of our problem. Really, these first few verses here, verses 10 through 12, Focus in on the evidence of the universality of the problem. I think this is the main takeaway. If you read these verses, if someone that had never read these verses before were to read them, what would stand out to them? Let's read it together here. Paul says, this is a quote, by the way, from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, which, uh, which really Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14, so it's from either one of those psalms here. Paul says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I think this really emphasizes the universality of our condition. I mean, how many times does he have to repeat it here that there's no one Uh Uh-uh, not one, not a single one. All of us, we've all gone astray. Together, we have turned away. Couldn't be hardly any more emphatic here. This means that God, I think, could comb the whole earth throughout all of history and find not a one who meets his glorious standard. Have you ever done a, a Google search? And, you know, typically when you search for something online, you know, you get so many results. <laughs> you, you never get to, there's just pages and pages and pages of results, right? You never, you, you would never hardly get to the end of it. But have you ever done a, a Google search and, and turned up no results? <laughs> it's pretty hard to do. I've, I've actually done it, though. If you enter enough criteria in the search bar, you actually can turn up, no, there's not a single webpage that matches what you're looking for, right? I've done it. Well, it's as if God searches the whole world with his highly specific criteria of what it means to be righteous. He searches the vast expanse of humanity not only now, but for all time. You know, sometimes we we live in such a a narrow slice of the world and such a narrow slice of history, but it may be a long time before I get to fly again, but every time I fly and I fly, you fly over a city or you fly over just communities and you look out and you think, my goodness, I'm just a small, single man here in the vast expanse of humanity. And yet in all that vast expanse of humanity not only now but but throughout all of time God searches and yet comes up empty looking for someone who is righteous we naturally want to protest this we say really Paul no one's righteous no one's good I've known some pretty good people No one understands. I mean, I've known some people who have some pretty keen insight. I've read some good books. No one seeks for God? Really? We want to say, is it really as bad as all that, Paul? And Paul is telling us, yes, from every angle. Yes, it is that bad. It is very clear. There is no gray area here. There's no one, no one, no one, not even one. This charge will, I think, seem like nonsense to you, though. Unless you, you understand two very important things. And, and the first one is this that God sees the heart. God sees the heart. I did a whole mini sermon series on this not that long ago, so I really don't want to belabor this point. But God sees the totality of our actions. He sees the outward action. That's the part that you and I can look at. We can look at someone else and see what they did and say, man, they seem pretty good. But God also sees the inner motivations of the heart, the part that only he can see. And so this means that it's possible for someone to do something that seems outwardly quite good that we all look at and say, wow, look at that. Look at that guy. Look at how he or she's helping the poor or, serving the community, or on and on and on. You can look at that kind of thing and and marvel. But meanwhile, God sees the inner motivation of the heart, and he sees there things like pride and righteousness, self-righteousness, and rebellion, and hatefulness, and lies, and hypocrisy. God sees the heart, and you know, the, if that's the first truth that you need to understand, if that's as if that's not enough, the second truth here is that God gets to define what's good and what's right. A couple of key verses in this regard: uh, one of them is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, the greatest commandment. Jesus said, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." How many of us have done that for even a single day? Romans 14, 23 makes it even worse. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So We need love. We need faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 adds to that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Who of us does all that we do to the glory of God? anything that's not done in love of God and with faith in God and to the glory of God alone falls short. And so this is universal and it's probably more so than you have ever even imagined, more than you probably are even able to conceive of. You know, this, we often say theologically, we, we say that we are totally Depraved. And I believe that that means that apart from God's grace, we can, we can and will do no good. And that doesn't mean, by the way, as I, I read somewhere this week, it doesn't mean that, you know, if we were to picture sin as being the color blue, well, then we're all blue, right? But we may, every aspect of us is blue, now there may be different shades of blue, different areas, but we are through and through blue with sin. Right? We are depraved. There is none righteous, no, not one. We don't even we don't even seek for God. Scripture says it's universal. Secondly, the evidence here that Paul gives. Trying to get my slides right here. The evidence is severe. This is verses 13 through 18. And I've listed up for you there on the screen all the, the various passages that Paul kind of pulls together from or alludes to here. If you want to write those down and look those up later and kind of ponder them a little bit more in their context, that might bear fruit for you. But I, I like to picture this section of scripture as if you went into the doctor, right? So you, you're beginning to sense, hey, there's a problem here. I need to go in, into the doctor and, and discern the the severity of this problem. And I really see that these scriptures here are, are sort of like a physical exam. First, Paul or this, Paul uses the scriptures to say, hey, open your mouth and say, ah. <laughs> Look at these verses, beginning in verses, verse 13. He says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Right? Scripture looks down your throat and sees an open grave. Inspects your tongue and, and sees you've been using it for deceit. Your lips are, are full of poison. Poison. Poison of vipers and asps. Your mouth is, is full of curses and bitterness. Can this describe us? How difficult is it to tame the tongue? And how readily our tongue reveals the sin that's in our heart. Uh, my, my former uh, pastor and mentor from my, my previous ministry used to always say that the tongue is the, the nearest tool of our heart, the nearest resource of our heart. What he means by that is that a heart uses all kinds of things. We can see what's in a person's heart by how you use the resources in your life, but the nearest resource that you have is the tongue. And and your heart is using that tongue constantly, and it's revealing what is inside. And what, what is revealed from our tongues out of our hearts is that our tongues give voice to the depth of our depravity. Doesn't don't have to teach anyone to have these foul things come out of their mouth. It just it it's just natural. It arises out of our sinful condition. I love the story of when the prophet Isaiah stood before the Lord in all of his glory and holiness in the heavenly throne room. He had the vision of the Lord there. And the Lord was surrounded by the, the cherubim with the wings and flying around and calling out that the Lord was holy, smoke was filling the temple, the the train of his robe was all around. And you remember what Isaiah did? He, He fell down and he cried out, woe is me for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think this would be a universal experience for anyone that stands before God. And this was a good man. This was a prophet of God. This was the preacher of Israel. And yet, when he stood before the holiness of God, the first thing that he noticed was, My lips are unclean. My, how we grumble. We grumble. We complain we gossip, we tear one another down, criticize, even curse and and tell lies, speak of empty or or lewd things. So the examination of Scripture looks into our mouth and sees nothing good. And secondly, the examination moves down to our feet. Verses 15-15. Through seventeen it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There seems to be a dysfunction in your feet, my friend. When it comes to violence you run toward it, you leave a wake of ruin and misery, and and though there's a path of peace, your feet don't even know it. I was reading this week that in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. I also read that there was more violence and warfare in the first quarter of the 20th century than in any full century before that. And if we want evidence of this, I mean, we, all we have to do is look at the news I mean, this week the news has been full of injustice and violence that leads to more violence that leads to more violence which makes us angry and leads to more violence. O oh, Prince of Peace, help us. Help your children to be ambassadors for peace, justice. You, Lord, have said, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Oh, Lord, may your children have beautiful feet. Thirdly, the examination moves to our eyes. And I, I really think Paul could have kept going on this one in particular. You just have one verse here. He said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs 1, seven says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Without the fear of the Lord, what do we have left? Either we fear no one or we fear everyone or somewhere in between. But we do what's best in our own eyes. If we don't have the Lord fixed before us, guiding us, if we don't fear Him, if we don't respect Him, if we don't look to Him for what's right and wrong, then we do what we think is best. And that's just a, a, a description of, of the default vision of man. We have an eye problem. And there's no glasses on earth that can fix it. We need to set the Lord before us and to fear him. But we don't. So this evidence is, is great. It spans scripture. And Paul could have kept going. The charge is universal. It's severe. And now the time has come to level The verdict, verses 19 and 20. But first here, Paul is quick to make sure that, again, his Jewish countrymen don't wiggle out from under this. Paul says here, we know, he's signaling here another point of common Jewish orthodoxy. Hey, this is something we all know, that whatever the law says, and he's referring specifically to the portions of the law, of the word of God that he's just quoted, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. My brethren, who are those who are under the law but the Jews? And so Paul is essentially saying here, I know that you're going to try to say that these passages I've just quoted describe Gentiles and don't apply to you. But don't do that, just stop. Because we know that whatever the law says, it says first to us, the people of God says it first to us, to us first and foremost who are under the law, Paul says. You know, we think that it's going to be harder to persuade someone of their sinful condition uh, who is far from God. Someone who, uh, to put it in, in Romans terminology, someone who's a Gentile. Someone who is of the nations, far from God, a pagan. Someone who is a prodigal. But Paul knows better, the tougher job is to persuade the Jew, the advantaged ones, the upstanding ones, the elder brothers. I think that's one thing, one of my big takeaways from my, my preaching through Romans 1-3 through 3 was just how heavily... Paul focuses in not on those who are far from God and are openly sinful and depraved, but he focuses attention in primarily on those who, who think they are righteous. I mean, overwhelmingly, even here into chapter 3, the weight of the argumentation is against those who are still clinging to some form of self-righteousness. Christopher Ash said it this way, he said, Paul's biggest challenge is to silence the protesting mouths of respectable people. Paul says, this first applies to you, my brethren, and then subsequently to everybody else, so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world, or literally cosmos is the word there, at the whole world Cosmos, the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is courtroom language here. The shutting of the mouth is intended to picture the defendant who has just been silenced by irrefutable evidence. Have you ever watched those uh, TV courtroom dramas from like the 80s? I kind of grew up watching some of those, like Murder, She Wrote and Matlock and some of those those shows, those courtroom shows. I love how at the end of those, it's everything just gets wrapped up so so nice and tidy, right? It's justice is served. You know who done it. There's always this moment in in those types of shows where, at, you know, near the end, there's always this surprising revelation that blows the case wide open. And The person who is guilty, it's suddenly very obvious who they are and and they are silenced if not outright confessing that they did it. This is kind of one of those moments here when Paul says, so that every mouth may be stopped. We are out of excuses. And our mouths should at least be stopped if not confessing by this point. And here is the verdict. The verdict is that the whole world is guilty. Paul says the law speaks that the whole world may be held accountable to God. I don't really like that translation here of this word as held accountable. I just don't think it's strong enough. I think of being held accountable. I I think of someone who's still talking, right? Right? I'm going to hold you to account and I want you to give an account of yourself and maybe you, who knows, maybe you are able to give a good account and maybe you're found faithful. Now, I think the, the force of this word here in the original is, is that the whole world might be found guilty. Look at verse 20. Paul says, For by works of the law no human being Literally there, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Works of the law. Law keeping. Law keeping is is a good thing. Right? It's a good thing to obey God's law. But Paul says law keeping in and of itself never justified, never saved anybody. No one will be justified before God based upon his or her own ability to keep laws, to keep rules, to keep some standard of righteousness, whatever you you picture that standard to be. No one is going to be justified before God by those means. You can't be justified in that way because you've already failed before you even begin before you would even begin to start to seek to keep a standard of righteousness, you've already failed. You failed years ago. Rather, Paul says that a major role of the law of God in your life is to shut you up, to shut your mouth from making excuses. And it does that by giving you a knowledge of your sin. Right? If I was to go speeding down the highway at 100 miles an hour, but, you know, I, I, I never had an opportunity to read a, a signpost that said I was supposed to be going 55, or I never had to take a, a test that quizzed me on the laws of the road, then how would I know that I'd sinned or that I had transgressed the law? Right? The law, one of the major roles of the law in your life is to point out the fact that you're not righteous. It was never meant to be taken as a standard by which, man, I better keep this thing perfectly so that I can stand before God someday and, and brag about my righteousness. No, the, the law was given to humble you, not to make you proud. It was given to humble you and to lead you to Christ. Christ. The law must first give you the knowledge and understanding of your unrighteousness and, and it does that benevolent, benevolently so that you will be eager to hear of a, a righteousness through a different channel, through a different means. And so the final verdict here is sounded out. It, 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 it's clear, it's a clear call that this is an emergency and the news, my friends, is worse than you think. I mean, the 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 older I get, the more I preach on this, the more I teach on it, the more I meditate on it from God's word, the more I begin to realize the 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 truth of it in my own life. And and now Paul is gonna, in the very next verse, thankfully he, <laughs> thankfully the letter doesn't end here. Right, With this knowledge of our sinfulness and this, and this sentence of guilty and, and, and the, the sure promise of God's coming wrath. What if we were left with that? But praise God, we're not left with that. Paul continues in verse 21 and he says, but now, but now, come hear what God has done for you. Tony Marita said it this way, he said, there is one who kept the law perfectly, Jesus. He never turned aside. He never uttered a sinful word. His feet were not swift to shed blood, but to give his own blood that sinners like us might be saved. Tim Keller summed up the gospel from the vantage point of a Christian like this. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Won't you turn to him today? If you have ears to hear what I'm saying this morning, spiritual ears to hear. I hope that you understand that the, the the teaching of this passage is actually a huge relief. I hope you can hear it as a huge relief that it's not based upon your ability to keep God's law. I mean, this is just a huge relief. And it means, by the way, that you are not too far gone to be saved. I don't know what you've done, but you're not too far gone. Because the standard isn't about you achieving some sort of perfection in your own strength. You are not too far gone. And it means also, especially I direct this to my church family here, that no one in your life is too far gone. No one in your family, that person at work, your neighbor who you're praying for that they might come to Christ, they're not too far gone. God's arm can reach them, His arm is not too short, it's not too late we can sound the alarm that we are in an emergency situation. And it's not too late to seek to make a safe landing. You don't have to prove yourself to God. Rather, see that it is God who has proved himself to you by sending Jesus Christ, his own son, To be betrayed, spit upon, beaten, torn, and humiliated. Not for no reason, but to bear your sin. It's not too late because Jesus went into the grave and three days later he came out again in victory over it. It's not too late today because Jesus ascended up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he invites you to trust in him and be saved. Thomas Watson said once that till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet We've tasted the bitterness of sin now for the past seven Sundays. I've never in my life had to trudge through seven sermons quite like this. We've tasted of the bitterness of our sinful condition, of our sin, of our, con- of our standing before God. And my prayer now is that as we turn to the good news... That all that work, all that bitterness that we waded through, will work to make Christ that much sweeter. Let's pray.